Hello, I'm Jonathan Smith. I'm the lead pastor at One Church TO, and you're listening to the teaching time from our weekend gathering. We're an imperfect community of over 70 nationalities and five generations who are attempting to follow and shine Jesus in the greater Toronto area. Our vision, it's so simple. We want to help people from all walks of life know God, love people, and in turn, impact our city for good. We've designed these weekends to be meaningful, challenging, and encouraging, and I hope that's what you get from listening. Welcome to the last week of YOLO. If you're a new guest here, I'm I'm just kind of pre-warning you. This is the culmination of many weeks of teaching in this church gathering, as well as our community groups. Uh, And we've asked you to submit questions along the way. So I want to say, firstly, thank you. Thank you for getting involved in community groups. Thank you for the, I mean, fantastic quality questions that you guys submitted for us to answer on this weekend. Uh, It's really going to be a lot of fun to actually journey with these guys. And I want to say specifically, too, because I haven't had the opportunity in our previous gatherings, uh, just to thank Pastor Keith and Dr. Van, because they've really quarterbacked and helped uh, in designing this series. And it's not often we have someone like Dr. Van who has a PhD uh, from the University of Toronto, specifically in eschatology, the study of end times. And so it's not often that we have an expert, the part of our church family, that can help lean in in these moments as we talk about how the world is going to end. So thank you guys, really appreciate that, thank you. I think it's just, again, too, just these two men, you know, it's not often you have 200 years of experience sitting on that couch uh, between them, but it's great to have them here. Really good to have them here. So let's jump right into questions. In fact, the first question is going to actually tie into the last one uh, that we're going to get to eventually. But someone starts out by, they submitted this question, they started out by just thanking us for doing the series. They reference the fact that many churches don't talk about end times, and they shy away from this topic. And here was their question, and I'll direct this towards you, Pastor Keith. Uh, some believe that there will be an end time revival, many people coming back to Christ, a mar- massive harvest of souls before the rapture. Others say that, in script, that Scripture doesn't support this, but rather indicates a falling away from the faith in the last days. What are your thoughts? Jesus talks about this. He says there will be a falling away. He says there will be a revival. Let's listen to his own words, Matthew 24. At that time, speaking about the end days, many will turn away from the faith. Many false prophets will appear and deceive many people. Because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold. But then, same, same sentence, he says, but, but, okay? So he's already talked about a lot of falling away. But listen to him now. But the one who stands firm to the end will be saved, and this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. You can almost hear him saying, I will build my church, and the worst that happens in the future of the world will not be able to overcome what I'm building. You know the day of Pentecost? Spirit poured out, right? On all generations, all genders, but then it says, it says this is what God planned all along. And he said, the spirit is being poured out on you so you can bring the good news of Jesus, listen, to the ends of the earth. Doesn't sound like a decline to me. Now, it's exactly what's happening in our world today. You can see in parts of Africa, for sure, parts of Asia, you can see revival in the church. In Europe and North America, not so much. 
So you're seeing a falling away and you're seeing revival just as Jesus said it would be. Now, I do have a quick YOLO answer to this question as well. Because you know how the end times, Jesus said in Revelation, talks about, you know, cataclysms, uh, cataclysmic events in the environment, on the planet, but also in society. The wickedness will increase. Well, what happens when humans get in trouble? <laughs> There's an ET call home mechanism in us, right? Help God. We send up a flare prayer. And can you, when a massive disaster happens on the planet or in society, think of the world leaders we have today, not mentioning names, but when, when, these, when something happens, somebody does something, it's in us. We just, a massive cataclysmic event or a massive tragedy in society would cause people to turn to the Lord. We could see a massive revival, you know, in our generation. That's great. So both, really. Uh, seeing people come, and there will be some that will be deceived and fall away in the last days. Uh, Dr. Van, we had a lot of questions about uh, specifically the book of Revelation and apocalyptic literature, because uh, the books are, they're filled with imagery. And so, you know, a lot of questions about the 144,000, the seven trumpets, about uh, this battle between Michael and the dragon, the Antichrist, uh, about the harlot or the mystery of Babylon. And so, uh, you can see that everyone was wrestling with these questions when they were looking at the book of Revelation or other apocalyptic books. So here's the question for you. How are we supposed to understand the imagery and what it all means in the book of Revelation as well as those found in other apocalyptic books of the Bible? Right, and uh, great question. For, part of the answer is in the term here, imagery, and what imagery does. Okay, so the book of Revelation. There is, there's no book in the Bible that commentators have disagreed about more than the book of Revelation because the images can be interpreted in so many different directions, right? And I would suggest that part of the difficulty we have in reading it well and agreeing on what it signifies is that it was written in an ancient literary category for which we don't really have much of a modern parallel. In other words, it's an ancient form of literature. Uh, it's the book of Revelation fits into that ancient category of literature, of apocalyptic literature. Jews had been writing books like the book of Revelation for 300 years. Uh, two centuries before Jesus, the century that Jesus lived, 300 years. And when John comes to write his towards the end of the first century, there's, there's a 300 years of that genre being established. Okay, good. So, what's really interesting then... And when, when Jonathan uh, calls me uh, an expert on this, I appreciate it. And uh, I should clarify where my expertise is. It's in this. What I studied was this ancient category of apocalyptic literature and read many of the things that Jews were writing about a coming Messiah. And that has helped me understand Revelation. So here's the point for us. When you come to Revelation, you should expect the symbols to both conceal and reveal. Just note how much of Revelation is unlike one of Paul's letters, where, you know, it could be detailed and specific. John chooses, as apocalyptic writers had before him, to choose to convey the wonders of what 
he understood was happening in, in the present and the near future was symbols. So these symbols conceal because they don't identify who's who and what's what specifically. They use symbols to represent them. Here's what else they do. So they, they conceal details. So be careful if you're looking for too many details. They conceal details, but at the same time, these symbols give us a, an idea of how significant the events are because the symbols themselves are over the top. So you, 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 think, you think even of the numbers, and many of you asked about numbers. Now, I tend not to take them too literally because even, even the, uh, the, the, the numbers are part of this symbolic representation, right? Not just, not just the scenes of the throne or what will happen with the beast, but even the numbers. They're all over the top. To say to the listener, something's happening here, you need to wake up to it. This is of cosmic significance. So instead of just one trumpet blowing, seven. Instead of just saying that, you know, in the last days, God's people will not be forget, forgotten and there'll be Jews coming from the 12 tribes. No, it's this revelation. It'll be 12 times 12,000. It'll be 144,000, right? And so this, this over-the-top kind of symbolism, dramatic symbolism, is meant to arrest the hearer in such a way that he or she leans forward and saying, wow, I gotta, I gotta take a look around. What, what, look what's happening here. It's, it's part of something much, much larger, right? So, uh, this is typical in apocalyptic literature. A lot of symbols. Now, this is really interesting. So I'm reading through this Jewish literature, the University of Toronto, and quite a few of the Jewish pieces I read would explain at the end who was who and what was what. The symbols would work, and then it was like at the end of the movie, okay, by the way, right, right, the spoiler alert's at the end, right? Revelation does less interpretation than the other ones do. In other words, Revelation goes out of its way not to explain everything. We're dealing here with the Word of God. And notice how, by not pinning everything to one person, one place in time, the power of that book worked in the first century like it works in the 21st. You, you, you can't tell me that anybody in John's immediate audience doesn't think he's talking about them. Oh, there, there, there was, uh, there were those that were rising up against the church. The church is being persecuted. When they thought of Babylon, they thought of the seat of evil. They thought of Rome, the center of the Roman Empire. Look, they think John is speaking to them. They think John has a word for them. Well, of course John did. But the power of these symbols, you see, because they're not all specified means, that here in the 21st century, we look at the symbols and we look around and we say, oh, maybe the Lord is trying to show me the significance of this event and that event. So it conceals while it reveals. Last, la last thing, and I don't want to take too long, but I've gone on a bit on this because I think it's important. The last thing it reveals to us is that it's not so much a guidebook in terms of how to understand the future, but it's a guidebook how to understand the present. Because we now know the cosmic significance of the day we live in, it's not just so that we can now recite it to somebody who wants to know. 
It's supposed to change and transform our lives, that we are in the midst of a great battle, and God is calling us to faithfulness, to be faithful witnesses, and do something for him before he comes. It's meant to give confidence, but it's also meant to say, hey, don't just be sitting, sitting on a couch, but, you know, right? Right? Okay, okay, so let me follow that up with a question because uh, if you've journeyed with uh, this church any length of time, we've talked a a bit about the Bible, and the Bible is not a book. The Bible is a collection of many ancient writings together, and they're from different genres, as you just mentioned. And I think many of us, and I would include myself, uh, I've I've noticed the people that tend to lean into revelations where I grew up would be people who love conspiracy or, or they're looking for mystery in it. And I may have even tried to avoid it because it was so hard to understand because it was, a, it was an unknown form of literature to me. In other words, some of the Bible is poetic books. And you, if you read it and you realize it's poetry, you don't read it looking for the same thing you'll look for in a historical book. And, or the letters that Paul wrote, their correspondence to local churches. And when you understand the genre, you get to read it differently. So those kind of books were easy for me to journey into because I had a modern day context. Even poetry, if you don't like it, if you studied Shakespeare, you recognize there's nuance in there that is beautiful, that, that helps you unpack it. But apocalyptic literature is not something I grew up reading. Like, uh, what is a modern-day parallel that can help us maybe even understand what John was intended to write when he wrote Revelation? Yeah, right. So what's the closest thing to it? Um, I I don't think there's any one type of literature out out right now that does this precisely, and I think that's why it's a free-for-all when we go to Revelation. Let's just make this up as we go along, right? But having said that, in other words, this is, this is coded for a reason, not coded so it can be decoded by a community that's intelligent, but it's coded to maintain some mystery. Right? In other words, it's supposed to be experienced rather than simply figured out. So my best answer to your question is, an answer I heard somebody give at a scholarly conference where the book of Revelation was being discussed. It was a great answer. We were talking about why, why scholars had, had struggled so much with Revelation. And somebody said, probably Hollywood has done a better job in conveying some aspects of the book of Revelation than the church has. Because we're trying to systematize it to death But Hollywood knows that this is a dramatic production meant to seize the listener. Like, you think of what's going on in Revelation. Uh, You're shown things. You're told what you're hearing. You're even told what you're smelling at certain points. When when the world's being shaken, even though we're not in one of those movie seats where you pay $100 for it to move, you're, you're sensing the world rumbling. The book of Revelation comes at you in a way to experience it, so you will never forget its truth. It's meant to impact you, and so to to change the way that you live. So in reading that, and would this be true of the other apocalyptic books, that we're supposed to be reading it almost through the lens of the arts, because of the imagery, it's meant to, we're meant to experience the book. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, absolutely. So Revelation is the prime example. The closest thing you have in the Old Testament would be Daniel. Some say only parts of it. But similarly, uh, it's, 
Revelation starts you, there's a narrative arc, there's a story, but there's all kinds of images that aren't necessarily in any kind of sequential order. They're just different ways of conveying the central ideas. And that's where the arts come in. This is an artistic way of saying, God wants you to know something, right? Beautiful. Well, let's keep going in that book. And this one's for you, Pastor Keith. Someone wrote in and said, I understand what Pastor Keith was saying in week number two regarding the purpose of knowing there will be an end, that it was told to us to ready our hearts and not necessarily to know when or to sensationalize it. So their question was this, why do you think it was revealed in such detail to John in Revelation? What are we to do with that information? I think we're to do with the information in Revelation exactly what we do with when Jesus in Matthew, Mark, and Luke talked about the end times, when the disciples would ask him. He, he used some of the same apocalyptic language, Revelation a lot more so, but Jesus described, you know, cosmic events happening, uh, tragedies on earth, wars, rumors of wars, famines, all kinds of, an increase in wickedness in society. And then he said, but guys, when these things happen, lift up your heads. Well, Revelation does the same thing. It's, it's not about bulls and beasts and dragons and Star Wars creatures. You know, it's about when you see the worst that happens on planet Earth, watch this. The Lamb is on the throne. The Lamb has overcome. You will be in heaven someday worshiping the Lamb. What about the Earth? Well, there will be a new heaven and a new Earth. And so uh, we interpret Revelation the same way we interpret what Jesus said about the future. It causes us to know God's got it all under control, and someday we're going to be with him forever in, a, in, in, a, in an evil-free, maximum-fulfilling, eternal future with Jesus. What a day that'll be. Yeah. What a day. Well, okay, so we had a number of questions submitted around this, and uh, it was obvious uh, maybe some of you weren't journeying in the community groups because we may have covered some of it in that, but uh, questions about the rapture and even about tribulation, because if we've grown up in the church, that's been a, a common narrative when we talked about end times, and so this person asked a great question. They said this, is there a reason why the rapture was not illustrated uh, illustrated on the chart used by all three speakers. And the three of us had used that chart. You'll remember that, friends. Uh, there was the age of Adam, the age of Christ. There's a beginning, there's an end, there's the cross and Christ's return. But they were asking, why wasn't the rapture actually illustrated on that? And so I thought I'd give that to you, Dr. Van, because really that's your yeah. fault. Right, right. <laughs> yes, well, I insisted we didn't put it on the primary chart. Now, it did appear in week two. It appeared on this platform in week two, appeared in the discussion groups in week two. But we made a decision not to feature it, and we announced why. Day one, this series is rated G, general, for all audiences. In other words, those who grew up with rapture and those who are wondering what in the world this term refers to would all feel as if they were being included in the series. Secondly, I thought if we just talked about rapture, our, our understanding of the significance of the day we might live in might become too narrowed, and we'd think, oh, they're just saying the same thing in the same way, heard that, been scared before, I'm fine now. Too many left-behind movies. 
So we weren't trying that. We're not going to spend seven weeks repeating what we think we all know. Look, this is a conversation going on in our fellowship, and I'm right in the middle of it. And I've been making the point that after decades of preaching what is known more broadly as the dispensational system, which features a rapture of the church of the believers seven years before the end of the end. And in between that rapture and the return of Jesus to earth is seven years of just hell on earth, right? We're, we're having a discussion in our own fellowship whether just saying that is doing enough to keep our people eschatologically aware that maybe the familiarity of it to some and the strangeness of it to others was keeping us from reminding our fellowship that for Pentecostals, the primary idea is Jesus is coming soon, soon and very soon, any moment. And as a result, we had to do something. You've heard that again and again and again. The challenge of the, the YOLO idea that this is all there is, so let's keep dancing. Right, this is, yes, this is a critical moment in time, and we need to invest it. But uh, we're, we're, living, we're living for another age, too. So that's the reason that we didn't feature it. And I, I think most of you have understood that, and I think, I think that's great. I think it drew us all in. Okay, just following up on that, because uh, we had a number of people submit questions about this idea of seven years of yeah, tribulation. Right, right, right. Uh, you know, this idea of, uh, is the church caught up before it, middle of it, after? What say you? Yeah, yeah. Okay, so if we're serious about symbolism, and numbers sometimes being not so much literal, but meant to suggest something large, significant is happening, even the seven years, I wonder if that's an actual seven-year period, or again, instead of just saying there's tribulation, but saying seven years of it is more meant to suggest, you know, be, be ready for this. Either way you look at it, uh, let, me, let, me say, uh, let me say something to you about rapture and tribulation. Okay, many of us have grown up with it. It probably didn't emerge as an idea in the church until the 1830s in, uh, in, the, in the United Kingdom. And the idea of the tribulation was seized on in Western Christendom, right, in the West, and popularized in countries like Canada and the United States, because we're all part of Christian nations. And the thought that God would bless us by not causing us to go through the worst had obviously great appeal. But of course, ask somebody in the persecuted church today, or some of the believers that were torched up by Nero in the first century, how they feel about the tribulation. I, you know we pray for the persecuted church. There are believers who have lost their lives simply because they said, I'm a Christian. Churches have been bombed, they've been burnt. You're reading it. Is this not the tribulation for them? Are they thinking, oh, it's gonna get worse than this? So my, my hesitation to promote it in this series is that I think we need to be aware of how the church in every age faces tribulation. And, and we don't just think, hey, and God loves me so much, he's just gonna get me out of there. That, that may cause us not to think about, okay, until he comes, what do I need to get in there to, to engage, right? So I'm not saying that things might not get uh, calamitously worse, 
But I'm just saying this, this is a scene we've seen before in church history. Yeah, that's good. Okay, so uh, Pastor Keith and I, you, we leaned in on a couple of the weekend gatherings, and this person makes reference to it. We talked about not being too anchored to this world, but to make sure we're investing in what is yet to come. And this person, you know, thoughtfully responds, I thought it was good, just said, is it wrong for me to enjoy this life? Uh, what if I want to drive a nice car, <laughs> have nice clothes? Would it be a sin to want to live this life well and purchase, uh, that I might purchase and desire for material things, to desire to live this life to the fullest? And I, it's just a condensed version of their overall question. But I think that captures some of our hearts in this room. How would you respond? Jesus teaches us that it's not uh, what we have, it's what we do with it that determines how much we're going to enjoy even what we have. You know, all of us have met uh, rich people that are stingy and selfish, but we've met poor people that are stingy and selfish. Some of the most generous and sacrificially giving people I know are rich, and they love to bless others. They love to steward what they have to help, help out. That's why the seminary exists. People just give. It's why church and, 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 and what we did for um, Bahamas. Bahamas. And so, and yet you can have people that, uh, that are poor that are very generous and sacrificial. See, a lot of people pick on the Apostle Paul and they take him out of context. How many have heard even people that don't know a lot of the Bible, but they'll quote this. They'll say, they'll say that the um, money is the root of all, right? That's not what the Apostle Paul says. He says we brought nothing into this world, 1 Timothy 6, and we can take nothing out of this world. Those who want to get rich fall into temptation and to a trap. Many foolish and harmful desires plunge into ruin and destruction for the love of money. The love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. See, Paul knew what it was like to have a lot of money at certain seasons of his life. He knew what it was to uh, not have a whole lot of money. He says, but I've learned whether I have a lot or little to be content. Because for me to live is Christ. And everything I have is for him. Little or lot, it's for him. And so, you know, a lot of us have learned that whatever we have, he talked about a car in his wardrobe, right? Yeah, or yeah. she, whoever it yeah. was. And um, everything we have is either a mirror or it's a window. I get into my car and say, I got this, it's for me. And, so, and I'm, you know, just keep it just for me. Or I can get into my car and say, thank you, Lord, for this great car. All the gadgets that I don't even know what they do. Thank you for this car. Or, I, you know, so things are either a mirror, I see myself, or they're a window, and I'm, I see the blessing of God, right? You know, all I have needed, your hand has provided. And so Jesus says it best in his story. A guy comes to him about his greedy brother. You can read about it in Luke chapter 12. And Jesus says, yeah, be on your guard against greed, because life doesn't consist in the abundance of possessions. And he tells the parable, the story of a rich man who just had all this kind of harvest and he kept it all for himself. Jesus' words, he just kept building more places to store it for himself. And then Jesus says, God says to him, you fool, this very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? This is how it will be with whoever stores up things for themselves but is not rich towards God. So enjoy God's blessing. Enjoy that car and those clothes. <laughs> enjoy them. But share God's blessing that you have with others. Give sacrificially and generously to others. And then you know what you'll be doing? You'll be storing up for yourself treasures in heaven. 
I think I heard someone say it well when they said, uh, it's not wrong to have things, it's when things have you. Yeah, when that's they control good. you. It's good. So, uh, Dr. Van, let's talk about heaven because we had a number of people ask about what it's going to be like and what, what will be like. So, this person asked this question uh, Will older people like yourself, Dr. Van? Who of you go. sent that in? Well, I may have added that part because uh, oh, you I may have added that okay, because I just I'm thought feeling better. we got to keep it real. Yeah. So I just, uh, yeah. well, older people like yourself, Dr. Van, go back to their younger bodies. Will we have bodies? Will we be just souls? Will we even recognize each other? We will have bodies. It's a very biblical idea that there is a resurrection to come. And as we were created, animated bodies, spirit and body, we are recreated to enjoy the next world as, once more, bodies that are animated by the spirit. So yes, we will have bodies. What will they look like? So uh, will, will it be a snapshot of all of us, you know, 20 years uh, earlier? Will God use that as, a, as the, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah, uh, I think because I'm still quite young, the Lord will still have a lot to work with, and I'd be good, but, but with the Ancient of Days over here, uh, probably a total makeover will be, will be appropriate. Okay, now let's get to what's really interesting here, okay? Uh, absolutely, we will, we will recognize one another. And here's how this is significant from an eschatological point of view. It wasn't just the book of Revelation, but some of these other Jewish apocalyptic pieces would talk about how all humankind is resurrected and made to look exactly the way they looked on earth. One, one actually says, and after the judgment comes, they either become, they start to look more grotesque or more beautiful. I mean, this, this is an apocalyptic idea. And it's a biblical one, too. So, yes, we will recognize each other. But, may I say, maybe we're not seeing this broadly enough. Because I think we tend to think of, okay, well, I'll know who my friends are. I'll know who my family is. And, on the more negative side, they'll know whether I've been rewarded, whether I've gotten what I deserve. We, we, we tend to individualize the judgment, right? Will I, know, will I know who my friends are? Will I get what I deserve? Will everybody else know? Okay, folks. There's a social dimension to the judgment. That the point of knowing is not just so we know who our friends are and where our, our loved ones are who have gone on before us. But there's something about the judgment of God where the world sees who the people of God are in a way that is dramatic because the judgment is not just about my individual reward and punishment. The judgment is about vindication for the people of God and in vindicating the people of God, we vindicate God's faithfulness and righteousness. Okay, can I say this in a different way? On that great day, the world will see those who are faithful to the Lord God, the ones that they killed, the ones they mocked, 
the ones that they derided, the ones that they demoted, the ones that they made sure were fired, because they treated, they treated the Christians as not worth, but on that day. The world will see who the people of God are. And, uh, and we will stand with him. And we will be able to see those who are not the people of God. There's a whole social dimension to it that's powerful. And in so doing, God receives glory and praise because he was faithful to keep his promises to those who trusted him. And even though they went through some stuff, here they are now in his presence. Uh, Pastor, you didn't mention it the other two times. You talked about the lamb who was slain. Um, I think in particular of the vindication on that day for everybody who has been uh, physically abused or martyred because they believed in Jesus. And when you look at the various revelations of Jesus himself early on in the book, what do you see? He appears as the... And then... And, here, and here's the matchup, the mashup. There's the lion, but you just said it. But he also appears as the lamb who was slain. Okay, this is really good. He, our Savior, represents not only triumph, but he is the representative to the world of what happens for those who are slain but are faithful to God. And he represents our hope. That as Jesus is glorified as the slain one, so by his grace somehow we're involved in that too. Oh, that's good. That's, that's good. powerful, man. Yep. I wonder, you know, if that's what Paul was alluding to when he writes in Galatians 6 where he says, don't grow weary in doing good. Don't, don't be, grow weary in being faithful, whatever you're going through, because at the right time you'll reap a harvest. And we tend to make it right about now. Yeah, we sure do. But that corporate sense... Someday vindicate it. Yeah, we'll stand together on that day, right? Okay, so Pastor Keith, let's, let's talk about death. Uh, actually, this person asks, what actually happens Apparently when... Apparently I'm closer to it than <laughs> some others in the room. And I'm moving a little further away from you because uh, still got some things to do. See, I wasn't even insinuating that, but thank you. Yeah. This person asked a great, thoughtful question. They, they preface it with this. They said, it's often said to be absent from the body is to be present from the Lord. This seems to contradict the concept of the second coming, which seems to mean that people remain dead with no concept of time until the Lord comes again. So the question is really simple. What actually happens when people die? When I take my last breath here, in however aged body I have, when I take my last breath here, I'm absent. I'll be leaving my body. I'll have that new body that Dr. Van talked about. But that part of me that was made in the image of God, the part that makes me different from any creature in the animal kingdom, that I'm made in the image of God, I'm, I'm, I'm a soul. The real Keith Smith, that part of me, that unique part of me, will go to be with the Lord. In other words, when I breathe my last breath here, the next awareness I have is that I'm going to be in the presence of the Lord. But what happens is then people, they, they cram everything into that moment. They just try and funnel everything in. And, and we need to understand that we're in the 
we're just beginning this glorious eternal future where time is not even going to be an issue. And so we've got the Bema seat, you know, the reward seat ahead of us. We, we have uh, the new heaven and the new earth, that's awaiting us. We have, you know, marriage supper of the Lamb, this reunion. We have the throne room of God where the Lamb is worshipped. We've got just, it's just overwhelmingly amazing what we will have in front of us. So don't try and funnel it all down. When I die, I'm going to experience all of this at once. No, including when Jesus returns, that's when we're going to have the resurrected body. And so it's not a matter of everything happening at once. Now, it's interesting that the same apostle who wrote the book of Revelation wrote in his first letter, so this must have been an issue for first century Christians too. He says, beloved, we are now children of God and what we will be has not yet been revealed. So we don't know at all. We know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him for we will see him as he is. So how, how many are thankful when we die, the next thing we know we're in the presence of the Lord and we're in for an amazing glorious future with Jesus forever. That's great, man. Okay, because it's an end time series, and I know both of you could speak to this, but I'm going to pick on Van a little bit here. Uh, we had at least four or five people submit questions about Israel. And of course, uh, Jesus was a single adult male that, uh, from a Jewish background in Israel. And of course, the first followers, the first century church kind of birthed out of that. Uh, and there's interest about how does Israel actually fit into the end times? Probably uh, there is no one single global event that has excited more prophetic interest than what happened in the middle of the last century when the state of Israel was constituted in 1948. And if this was a traditional Bible conference, I would spend a lot of time talking about uh, the significance of that. I'm personally more comfortable starting from another point, not to discount that one, but I'm more comfortable in starting with Paul's three-chapter discussion of the future of Jews in Romans 9 to 11. He thought it was important enough that he took 11 chapters to discuss it. And here's what drives him. As a Jewish believer in Christ, he is wondering, as are other Jewish members of the first church, why more Jews aren't coming in and why the, the, the expanse of the church is tending to happen more amongst Gentiles as it spreads than Jews across the, you know, the, 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 the diaspora, right? So this is a very important question for Paul because he's saying, well, actually, you know, this is our Messiah. Why are not more of his people coming in? So he takes, nine, he takes, uh, he takes chapter 9, uh, 10, and 11 to talk about it. Here is his basic answer. He said, right now is the time of the Gentiles. This is a time when they are coming in, but that time will come to an end. And they have been grafted in with full rights and privileges, but it will come to an end. And he says, then I see this. And to Paul, this is again about the faithfulness and the righteousness of God. That even right now, it might seem embarrassing to some within the Jewish community of believers that so few Jews are coming in and might be seen as somehow God's failure. That's exactly what Paul's saying. It might seem like that. He says, I see someday when it won't just be this small remnant, 
but it, it will involve all Israel. In other words, there will be Jews coming from every part of, uh, of the Jewish community, not just this one small one. So I'm always more comfortable starting with that one, but that's a very significant piece, isn't it? Okay, so um, are you ready to make a prediction? Prediction. I know you made a great prediction last night. You predicted the Habs would beat the Leafs, and they did. Five to two. Well done, well done. Yep. Uh, as should be. Uh, no, no, no fans of hockey here. These are the last days. No, these are the last days for sure. Uh, someone writes in, and I love it because it's kind of funny how they start. They say, I know we're not about setting a date for the end of the world, but if you had to, Pastor Keith... Uh, would it be one year, 10 years, 100 years, or 1,000 years? When is Jesus going to return? This is an eschatological survey. We just did the church exactly. survey. Now we're options. doing the eschatological survey. So A, B, C, or D? I, I am sticking to my YOLO prediction. Okay. I am sticking to the prediction that God only knows, because that's what Jesus said, <laughs> that, that it's going to be right on time, that it'll be when we least expect it, that it's closer now than it used to be, and it could be today. Are you ready? Yeah. See, we grew up in uh, North American church culture where people sensationalize current events and were quick to try to decode revelation and jump on something. And I just feel as a pastor, I, you know, it sort of got to be where it was like crying wolf. <laughs> Everyone kept saying, oh, he's going to come by this date, this date. And then he didn't. And then, no, no. Listen, I refuse as a pastor you know, with all respect to the question and answer, you asked a good question, but I, I refuse to, to um, try and make the second coming of Jesus Christ more sensational than it already is. You can't get better than this, that however bad it gets, God's right on track, he's returning on time, and we're going to be with the Lord in a place free from evil forever and ever. You can't get better than that. That's great. Well, uh, picking up on, on something that Dr. Van was teaching about, about <laughs> healing and miraculous signs and wonders being a preview of the kingdom to come, um, someone asked about healing, Pastor Keith, and just that fact that people who are followers of Jesus even were healed and non-Christians are healed. What type of sign is that? What is healing a sign of to people who are not followers of Jesus? When Jesus showed up on planet Earth the first time and he went into public ministry, his boat would pull up on the shore of Sea of Galilee. Do you remember when we built a boat up here on the platform years ago for the Beatitudes years? His boat, he'd get out of the boat and he preached the, to this crowd and to that crowd. It was a heavily populated area of towns in that time. And Jesus said the same thing. The kingdom of God is now here. You know, what you've read about from the Old Testament prophets about the, the blind receiving their sight, broken hearts being healed, and people in bondage being delivered, it's here. The king is here now, and the kingdom is for you. And then Jesus didn't say, now, all who want that healing, if you're a follower of me, get in this line. Those who are not following me, go home. It was a sign for the unbeliever. Because when you see someone doing signs and wonders and miracles and healings, you sort of get, the, you know what? Whoa, where did that power come from? That came from God. This is the son of God. So it, it, it was not uh, just for Christians. It was not just for his followers. It was a sign for people who did not follow him. I love the, and I never thought of it, but I just love that phrase that you used, Dr. Van, in this series. 
when, when, when Jesus would heal someone, when he heals someone today, it's a preview. It's a sampling. Not everyone gets healed, but it's a sampling of what's to come. Jesus didn't, did you notice Jesus never uh, did a funeral sermon? Do you know why? Every funeral he went into, he, wrote, he raised a person from the dead. <laughs> People couldn't stay dead around him because his kingdom was about life. And the future is a time where there'll be no more sickness. There'll be no more death or mourning or pain. And it's like Jesus is just giving us a sampling in those three years of public ministry of what our kingdom with him is going to look like. You know, just to, to get us to hungry for that time when we are forever with all. So it, it has a very practical uh, application to today because uh, with our neighbors, and Esther's here in this service, my wife, and we've always tried to establish a relationship with our non-Christian neighbors where we could reach a point where we could witness to them about Jesus. And, uh, you know, whether it was this, I remember the journalist in Edmonton, Esther, next to our townhouse that uh, was looking, you know, that had the sick child and we prayed and the child was healed. I mean, that gets her attention. Um, two months ago when uh, our, our condo neighbor's daughter had a classmate die during the night and was just traumatized by it, the, the books and the prayers, you, she's open to our prayers, wants to talk to us about it, you know? This is the reason why there are signs and miracles so that we can reveal Jesus. That's great. Okay, because time is short, a couple of last questions. Uh, this one directed towards you, Dr. Van. Uh, is the world really going to be fully destroyed? Or is it appropriate way to read it as more like hyperbole? The new heaven, the new earth, going to be part of God recreating, making all things new. Yeah, and you know, this is being debated. Now, I, I tend towards the position that there is less continuity between what we have now and what is to come than some others do. So I, I stress the discontinuity because I take the word new seriously. So I, I don't think it's just a bit of reno work. I, creation, recreation, new heaven, new earth. But, but uh, there is a lot of talk about it out there. In fact, what I'm hearing is this idea that we won't really even necessarily go to heaven because heaven will come down to us and we're just going to continue to live here through eternity. I live in Pickering, Ontario. I'm sorry. And I'm, that's where I'm going. And I'm thinking, okay, well, I'm preferring the new heaven and the new earth because I don't want to spend the rest of eternity looking at that stupid nuclear power plant. <laughs> that's my answer. Okay. <laughs> Time is short. Okay, one last one for you, Van, and then maybe uh, both Pastor Keith and Dr. Van at the last one. This question came from one of our community groups, and I thought it was so thoughtful and challenging that I thought I'd give it to you here. He said this, uh, in our community group discussion this week, we wondered, and I love their heart here, we wondered what will happen to those who didn't have a chance to hear the gospel. Individuals in extremely remote areas of the world where no one has yet visited and they've never heard about Jesus. So their question is this, how will they, those who never hear about Jesus, receive a chance to be saved? Okay, so all these questions are great. And if I was in a classroom, I'd be saying all these questions are great because these are too. But I would say, okay, maybe this is the quintessential question. 
because uh, to me, you, you revive an eschatological sensibility in a congregation so that our view of what's significant broadens and it's not just me and my house will be saved, but what about others? And I just think it's so appropriate in an eschatology series, and thanks for the opportunity to do this, guys, that we talk about uh, clearly how do we understand our role and what happens to those that we, we never managed to reach. My best short answer starts in Genesis, starts in Romans chapter 1, verse 20, where Paul is talking about those who never have an opportunity to hear the word of the Lord declared. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that men are without excuse. Paul is saying no one can simply say, hey, I never, I never heard. Paul is saying everybody is responsible for the level of their understanding of God. Everybody's responsible to uh, to react to that. Now, this does not say to me then, okay, good, I'm not going to worry about them. Because uh, Paul is going around the, the uh, eastern end of the Mediterranean nonstop as a missionary. Jesus is telling us to scatter and cover the face of the earth. Because obviously, humanity's hope is not figuring it out on their own, but hearing the word presented. So we know God is a fair judge, he's a good God, uh, this sounds trivial, but I trust him. But it means for us that, you know, we want to narrow that, that range. And are, are we going into global missions? Yeah, we are. Yeah, there we yeah. go. Last question of the series. Uh, I'm going to ask you to start it, Van, and I'm going to ask Pastor Keith to have the last word because I think around Van, you, all, you all often haven't had the last word. So I want you to have that. Uh, it's this is not going to end well. <laughs> in keeping with that question, someone asked this. If you only live once and so many will die without knowing about Christ and so many will not have an opportunity to even be a part of a gathering like this, uh, how will we as a church equip believers to make disciples who make disciples? Van. Yeah, that's, that's great. Yep, right. So we're, we're, we're trying to revive our sense of witness, folks, telling people about Jesus. We, we all have a role in this. Do you remember Thanksgiving? Remember uh, Thanksgiving weekend? I, I announced a challenge, and I said, I'll take this seriously if you, if you will. Do you remember the challenge? That over the course of the next week, you'd just be open to an opportunity looking at you. That you'd be open to an opportunity. The moment came just to share a word of thanksgiving with somebody. Not get too uptight about what you'd say, but just say, look, the Lord's done something. And I just wanted you to know. Remember that? Yes? Yes? How'd you do? Okay. So I'm driving home. And by the way, Jonathan did really well with the challenge. Because I asked him about it. I'm driving home on Sunday afternoon. I'm thinking... Okay, what have I just gotten myself into here in the next seven days, right? And, and don't be thinking, well, Dr. Van, it's not, it's not hard for you because you're talking to people all the time. No, I talk to Christians all the time. Um, the only non-Christian that, that I work with is, is Pastor Keith Smith. <laughs> I'm in a totally Christian environment. 
And as I'm driving home, I'm saying, now, Lord, I'm not going to let these people down. I'm not going to let you down. So I pull in my driveway, and there, there's a neighbor. Uh, she's in her backyard. I make a beeline for that backyard. I'm saying, okay, Lord, here we go. I said, hey, can I, can I just share something with you? So she comes over. I said, uh, I said you know, in, um, in, in church this morning, um, the pastor put out a challenge that we should say a, a word of thanksgiving to somebody. I, I left out the little detail that I was the pastor who had said it. Pastor challenges just to say a word of, of thanksgiving. And so I, I want to say something to you. I said, you, you probably don't know this, but um, our fa- when our family was going through a bit of a difficult time, you, you folks were the kind of neighbors that I've thanked God for since because you just responded in such a way that you, that you helped us and you, you encouraged us. I don't think you even know that, do you? So, because I've thanked God for you, I think I should tell you that I think God used you, and I want you to know that too. That's all I said. She looks at me, she says, I'm getting chills. I thought, yeah, I know the feeling. It's really interesting that uh, just, just on um, Wednesday, Friday, Wednesday, as I'm leaving the house, her husband's outside. He comes over. He says, uh, Van, uh, we haven't really told anybody, you know, but we haven't really even told friends yet. We haven't told neighbors, but basically, our conversation, he wanted me to know that his wife was facing something very serious. But he, and he wanted me to know. That's interesting, isn't it? So, uh, next time you see me, when you think about this series, would you say, Lord, and for, uh, for Pastor Van's neighbor, could a miracle happen there for the sake of the kingdom of God? Mm-hmm. You know, when Jesus uh, was about to ascend into heaven, he says, I'm coming back. But he said, while I'm away, I'm going to send you all the, the best help I could give you. And he said, stay in Jerusalem. Don't even try and go witness to people unless you have this power. I want to give you tools in your spiritual toolkit. And, and, you know, isn't it neat that tonight, right in this room, I'm going to be praying with people to be spirit baptized. And I was telling Dr. Zvan, Pastor Jonathan, that recently I just... Uh, it just became clear to me why some people that have prayed for the spirit baptism, they love the Lord and it's right there. And, and they don't have the freedom to pray and praise in a new language as part of their, their spirit baptism. I, I'm, I'm going to share with you something I learned tonight. And so be here tonight. One of the best things you can do for your neighbors and people in the world is to be baptized with the Holy Spirit. And, and don't, don't go into your future without having that help that Jesus wants you to have before he returns. That's really good. That's great. Hasn't this been good, friends? Thank you guys uh, again for sharing and uh, leaning in in this moment in this whole series. I've asked Dr. Van to kind of conclude this gathering in prayer uh, for all of our campuses that we'd be ready, that we would have anticipation of the future and confidence in what Christ has done. So, Dr. Van, would you lead us in prayer? Let's pray together. Great Lord God, we represent in our church in all the various locations, your people. And we can testify to the glory of God that you have brought us together and you are keeping us. 
that we are secure in our faith and no matter what we face, Lord, as we are faithful, Lord, we count even more on your faithfulness. Lord, in this series, when we have been thinking about your coming, we've been thinking more and more about others. So, Lord, here would be our prayers, the church, that, Lord, you would use us more and more as the days are coming at us, it seems, faster and faster with what seems like greater and greater intensity. Lord, would you enable this church to continue its work to say to this community, as well as to our neighbors and office workers, that we have a hope in Jesus, that the Lord has done something, and we want you to know about it too, so you can be prepared when he comes for you as well. So Lord God, may we with confidence today leave this place, Maybe with a, a sense of what we need to do, leave this place. And may we leave this place, Lord, determined, determined to reflect your glory until you come, Lord Jesus. Come, Lord Jesus, for yours is the power, the kingdom, and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you found this helpful, we hope you join us at one of our campuses if you're in the GTA for a weekend gathering. If you're listening from somewhere else in the world, we'd encourage you to join us at onechurch.to slash live. We believe everyone can be a part of what Jesus is doing both in our community and in our city. So if you'd like to connect with us at a deeper level, visit us at onechurch.to slash next steps. See you next time.